The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. Hello and welcome to another episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast. Thank you very much for listening to this latest episode. If you haven't listened before, then uh, welcome. Um, Every episode we talk about different uh, creatives and characters from the James Bond films. At the moment, we're at the letter B. Um, you get, if you go back to the beginning, we start obviously with the letter A, and we plan to carry on all the way through to the letter Z. Uh, each week, uh, the three of us look into a number of different people behind the James Bond films, research as much as we can, and then we come back and deliver our homework uh, in the form of a podcast. So, um, delivering his homework, unless his dog ate it. Of course. Uh, first, <laughs> not this time, <laughs> is Mr. Tom Wheatley. And you have someone very interesting to talk about. You have a Bond girl to start us off with. I do indeed. B is for Bouvier, Pam Bouvier. Now, you'll know Pam Bouvier, um, played by Carrie Lau uh, as um, the main Bond girl in Licence to Kill. In that film, um, Pam Bouvier is a former army pilot. Um, and works as a CIA informer, posing as a courier for drug lord Franz Sanchez. But uh, first, I'll just talk a little bit about um, Carrie Lau and her kind of background and uh, before starring in the film. Um, she was born in February uh, 1961, so she's 59 now, in Huntingdon, New York, uh, she's got a quite an interesting history, actually, as, a, as an actress. She, her father was a geologist uh, that travelled all around the world. So she spent most of her childhood living in loads of different places, including Libya, the Netherlands, uh, France, as well as loads of different places in the US, like Houston, Texas, uh, Denver and Colorado. Uh, she moved to New York City and she started a modelling career for uh, people like Ralph Lauren and uh, Calvin Klein. Um, and she broke into acting with the film Dangerously Closed, uh, Dangerously Close, followed by a, a role in a Robin Williams movie called Club Paradise, uh, which was a Harold Ramis film. Uh, she went on to star in quite a lot of films, actually, that um, I, I didn't realise when I was researching this how many quite big films she'd been in. Uh, Fierce Creatures. Have you seen her in Fierce Creatures? Fierce Creatures, I haven't seen for a long time. That's the uh, John Cleese, um, yeah, Kevin um, Klein movie, isn't it? Uh, she's one of the zoo keepers. Right. She was in Sleep in Seattle, uh, leaving Las Vegas. Um, and then later on, she went on to star in uh, Law and Order, which I've never seen. Um, and I think there's loads of different versions of Law and Order. And she's she played a character in a lot of those. Um, she has uh, she was a student, uh, a, a major in literature at New York University. And um, she also uh, studied at the Neighbourhood Playhouse in New York. So she's quite got quite an interesting uh, history as a, as an actress before starring in Bond. Uh, eventually, she uh, got the role in Bond, which she was quite surprised about, um, based on the fact that she she didn't feel like she was actually kind of Bond girl style um, to the point where at, at the audition she actually turned up in like a leather jacket and, uh, and jeans as opposed to what you'd probably expect from uh, the sort of sorts of um, people that turn up for those auditions. Uh, after Licence to Kill she went on to uh, star or used her voice in the Licence to Kill um, 
section of the 007 Legends game, which we, we've talked about on the podcast before. Uh, it has a whole level devoted to License to Kill story, and she actually comes in and does the does the script for that. She uh, Most recently, she has uh, appeared in Blue Bloods. I don't know if you've seen that. Nope. No. Sounds like a cop uh, show. It's a it's a cop show with um her what's his face Magnum Tom Selleck, that's him yeah uh, and then yeah so but she hasn't done a lot since um, those 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 films really she's gone a bit quiet her personal life is actually a bit more um, interesting in terms of what she's been doing so she's been married three times um, the last person she was married to was Richard Gere who they had a she was uh, married to for eleven years and then they spent three years in a very contested divorce proceedings uh, went to New York Supreme Court uh, and eventually it was settled in 2016 so quite an interesting divorce there <laughs> um, so, uh, so going on to the actual character that, that she plays I don't know how much you remember about um, Pam Bouvier's role in, in License to Kill it's, it's an interesting Bond girl um, mainly because it's such a strange Bond film in the in the series. She's she plays up against um, Timothy Dalton's very you know strict, angry, kind of traditional focus of Bond that he was going for. So if you, when you, when you watch License to Kill, her her Bond character is it's not it's not the same as uh, many of the other Bond characters you'll see previously. So um, she plays the. We've seen this quite a lot actually when we when we talk about Bond girls, and um, she she plays kind of a counterpart to Bond basically. She's a CIA agent. There's many scenes in it where you you'll probably remember the most famous scene where she he they're in a bar and um, Sanchez's um, kind of right hand man, played by Benicio Benicio del Toro, is kind of having a go at them, and she says, "Have you got a gun on you?" And Timothy Dalton pulls out his his Beretta. And um, she just kind of shakes her head and pulls out a shotgun from under the table. Pretty classy stuff. Where you suddenly go, oh yeah, she's she's got, she's got, she's in control here. She's um, she's she's gonna give um, Bond a run for his money. But as it always happens in every single one of these films, where they start off with that whole process of the Bond girl having kind of like a being a Bond character. By the end of it, she's becomes quite kind of secondary and there's actually a scene later on where um the the other bond girl that's that's in the film sanchez basically sanchez's mistress um towards the end of the film he has a love interest in both of them and he's with um the the mistress at the end and um, pam bouvier gets very upset and runs off so so to solve the situation he sets up the mistress with the president of um, wherever the, it, that film is set, so that she's quite happy. She's gone off with the president, and he goes back to Pam Bouvier and says, "I, I pick you." Strange concept for a, a Bond film, how, choosing between two women at the at, at one point in a film. Um, but obviously, at that point, she becomes quite upset and loses her hard edge to kind of. She's fallen in love with him. She's 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 given up on that whole kind of. Um, tough angle and same thing we've seen very very many times Dario that's the name of um, <laughs> Benicia del, del Torres's uh, character just thought it so th- that that's really the, her role is in the in the film I don't think she's she's down as one of the big um, the big Bond girls in the list I actually in in research, researching through um, various books and things she doesn't get a, lo- a lot of mentions in a lot of encyclopedias and kind of guides to Bond she's, she's, she's more of a kind of a, a bond footnote um bond girl really and she's she's you'll you, you know her she's quite prominent in in the, her role in that film but she's not really in the in the big big leads when it comes to the history of bond girls some interesting facts about uh carrie Lau, though um when she was preparing to play the role of pam bouvier she decided to watch loads of bond films as you would but didn't bother reading any of the of ian fleming's novels because um, she said, in a way, the books didn't really affect my character. The way Fleming wrote his women was not necessarily the person I was playing. Which is actually quite interesting, because Timothy Dalton was obsessed with mm. um, basing everything on the on, on the Fleming books. So, um, but I think that yeah. there's an argument to say, you know, that the Bond, the, the, the Bond on film and the Bond in the books, it, 
is very different. And Dalton maybe was trying to bring those two things together, but they're yeah. very hard to reconcile, I think. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and I suppose in the 1980s, it's that, that was probably the big start, wasn't it, of, um, you know, changing the, the way the genders' roles are played in the films and and all that kind of stuff, which is what... Um, which, which which is quite clear in both uh, Living Daylights and Licence to Kill. So you probably you wouldn't have been able to have a, an Ian Fleming Bond girl in those films. It just it just wouldn't have worked at that point. But um, she described becoming a Bond girl as huge shoes to fill, um, and she never saw herself as a as a glamour girl. Um, she wore a wig for all of the scenes set in the United States, um, but she actually had quite short hair. Famously, and she had short hair in uh, as a model. So there is a scene in License to Kill where she cuts her hair so that you can actually see her real hair um, on on film. Um, her surname uh, Bouvier is a reference to uh, the American First Lady Jackie Kennedy, as that was her maiden name. That was quite interesting. She's also, this is, I'm not sure how true this is, but apparently Pam Bouvier is the first Bond girl to ever drink one of Bond's signature vodka martini cocktails in the Bond series. Um, And in AMC's Bond Girls Are Forever, uh, Carrie Lau said that she shut her eyes and flinched every time she fired a gun and had to be trained to fire with her eyes open because a CIA operative wouldn't flinch when firing a gun. Um, So that's uh, that probably would have looked quite pathetic on screen um <laughs> another fact the screenplay was not ready by the time casting had begun so carrie lau actually auditioned with lines from view to a kill mm. um so she probably don't know how, what she thought about the film when she uh when she was reading lines to that good script um, yeah maybe hope it wasn't in the horse no it wouldn't have been the horse bit would it <laughs> um, and then uh, according to the book The Making of Licence to Kill by Sally Hibbin um, Carrie Lau handled herself so well during the fight scenes that members of the stunt team gave her the nickname Pambo that's great <laughs> yeah it's quite a good name um, and also oh it's, it's Talisa Soto who, who played the um, Sanchez, uh, uh, Sanchez's um, love, love interest uh, and apparently both her and Carrie Lyle refused to pose for Playboy when asked um, after filming and, and, and being in the Bond film. B is for Boyle, Danny Boyle. So cheating a little bit here because obviously Danny Boyle only has a loose connection to James Bond, but I thought the films i thought it'd be an interesting person to talk about obviously with no time to die sort of lingering in the ether um (laughs) so daniel francis boyle uh, was born the 20th of october in 1956 he's an english film television and stage director and and film producer also obviously best known for his work uh, his films feature films shallow grave train spotting the beach 28 Days Later, Sunshine. I mean, his his back catalogue is amazing. Slumdog Millionaire, which won the Oscar. 127 Hours, Steve Jobs. And then, obviously, more recently, Yesterday. Um, he's got quite a distinctive sort of style, I guess. Uh, never really tackles the same genre twice. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, he's sort of connected to Bond only very loosely uh, to, in two very different ways so firstly he directed the james bond skit that played at the opening ceremony of the 2012 olympics in london um and then secondly he came very close to directing a james bond film um bond 25 as it was at the time uh which is now no time to die um so the skit we'll just cover that quickly so So in 2012, Boyle was the artistic director for the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympics here in London. Um, And it was called the Isles of Wonder. Um, It was a a fantastic opening ceremony. And part of the ceremony was a short film directed by uh, Danny Boyle. And it was called Happy and Glorious. And so I'll just give you a quick summary of what happens there. So you're inside Buckingham Palace as a group of Brazilian school children um, having a guided tour of the uh, of Buckingham Palace. Brazilian because in four years time it was going to be in Brazil, the Olympics. 
And then you see a, a taxi pull up and they watch this black cab pull up outside Buckingham Palace. A man comes out. Um, you don't really see who it is, runs up the staircase. But when you come to the interior, you see it's Daniel Craig as James Bond in a tuxedo. He runs up the stairs. He goes past some corgis. Now, the, the corgis feature quite a lot. I don't know if you remember this skit, but the corgis are in it a lot. Yeah. Um, so he meets a footman uh, as he comes up the stairs who then who greets him. I think he, he says, oh, you know, hello, Mr. Bond. And then he takes him into the, the, the Queen's drawing room where she sat at her writing desk and she's sort of busy doing some work at her desk. He coughs. She turns around and says, good evening, Mr. Bond. Um, and then he escorts her to the helicopter. Uh, the helicopter then takes off, flies across London um, and then as they get to the Olympic Stadium, they both jump out and the Bond theme plays. It's uh, it's absolutely brilliant. It's like it really yeah. does play on like what the, the best things about being British are. It's like one of the few things that, you know. Yeah, I, I remember it, when that came out and I, I didn't know that was going to happen. Um, I don't think anyone knew it was going to happen. I think the, mm-hmm. I think the sun sort of leaked it, but no yeah. one really followed up on it. So um, it was a cool surprise, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. So they jump out um, and then they f- and then they fly into the the ceremony. Um, so the, the 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 people that performed the stunt as Bond and the Queen were Mark Sutton and you're like this Gary Connery. Mm. Um, so hey. they were the stunt people that performed that one dressed up as the Queen, one dressed up as Bond, and then obviously the Queen then appeared at the at the stadium and it looked like she parachuted in. So it's a great it's a great little skit. So what actually that final uh, sketch was not actually what um, Danny Ball originally had in mind for this uh, sketch. He had um, written to Buckingham Palace, really just asking for permission to do the gag. And what they would do is use a double or a, a close-up, um, a lookalike of the Queen, or actually he, he looked at getting Helen Mirren to play the Queen. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd, always, or they'd sent out location scouts to look for places that could double for the palace. And actually what he was looking for when he spoke, when they when they wrote to the queen or the the palace was that just just for permission to do the joke but actually they when they responded they said the queen wants to be in it she wants a talking role and you can have permission to come to the palace to shoot it and blah 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 so that was it and and actually the the most difficult part of making it happen was not getting permission from the queen or finding time in the queen's diary to do it. it's actually finding time in daniel craig's diary to do it because at the <laughs> time he was shooting skyfall so they had to work it into the shoot of skyfall that he was going to do it i mean what better promotion for that film That's obviously which mm-hmm. came out in winter 2012 for it to play to a global audience at the olympics so that's daniel craig fully in skyfall mode which is amazing when you think about it yeah so according to a report online, uh, the Queen didn't want anyone to know that it, that she was doing it. None of her family knew. She, Charles, Camilla, William, Kate didn't know that, that the Queen had shot this video for <laughs> Danny Boyle in the opening. So the first time they saw it was when they watched the opening ceremony. That's incredible. I'd, I'd love to... I mean, she kind of suggests that the Queen's a Bond fan, doesn't it? Yeah, so exactly. Uh, yeah, I'd love well, to actually, find out what our favourite ones are. Yeah. What, what she said is that... Um, that she really wanted to do it for the people that worked at the um, at, at, at the at the palace because she thought it'd be a great day for them to have Daniel Craig as James Bond come in and so mm. yeah uh, Daniel Craig in an interview said that um, you know the Queen did a fantastic job um, he said I'm a big fan of Danny Boyle he did an amazing job with the opening ceremony I was proud to be a small part of it it was quite surreal to be in the palace with the Queen but Danny was being lovely and so was she mm. so um, so after Danny Boyle's brush with Bond. Obviously, he got on very well with um, Daniel Craig there. Development of the next James Bond film. Obviously, we had Skyfall, then Spectre, then the next, then No Time to Die began uh, development in early 2016. And um, in 2017, uh, Purvis and Wade started on their script. Sam Mendes ruled himself out uh, about um, returning for a third Bond film uh, Christopher Nolan also ruled, ruled himself out and then a bunch of directors were courted at the time names that kept popping up Jan Demange David McKenzie Denis Villeneuve uh, these were all names that are in the mix but by um, February 2018 it was announced um, that Danny Boyle was the front runner to take on the on, on Bond 25 and 
So his pitch to Brocklin Wilson um, was a an original idea based on a, a script um, from his regular, regular screenwriter, John Hodge. So it was going to be a brand new script and Purvis and Wade's scra- uh, script was going to be completely scrapped. The draft that Hodge, um, John Hodge delivered was greenlit and then Danny Boyle was confirmed to direct and the production was due to shoot start shooting in December 2018. So they stayed on the project until August 2018, um, by which point actually a bunch of people had already been hired. Mark Tilsley, for example, uh, Danny Boyle's regular production designer, he had been hired and started to work on the film. A bunch of people had been, you know, hired uh, they'd got as far as casting. Uh, there were casting sheets that were going around. Um, one um, casting sheet, which got leaked to the press, so said that it was looking for a cold and charismatic Russian for a lead role. It was looking for a female lead who was witty and skillful, a witty and skillful survivor. And that also they were looking for a supporting role, someone. Uh, sounds like a henchman or a heavy uh, someone of Maori descent with advanced combat skills and at the time there was a lot of speculation about why Danny Boyle quit the project there was talk that there was um, tension over the casting of the lead villain um, he had apparently wanted to cast this guy Thomas Cott um, but Danny Boyle later said that the dispute was actually over the script um, that he, him and Hodge had worked on and this is what he told Empire magazine in March 2019, so sort of a year after. He said, what John Hodge and I were doing, I thought was really good. It wasn't finished, but it could have been really good. We were working very, very well, but they didn't want to go down that route with us. Um, we decided to part company and it would be unfair to say what it was because I don't know what Carey is going to do. And he's talking about Carey Fukunaga there. But he got a very nice. Me- I got a very nice message from Kerry Fukunaga, and I gave him my best wishes. Best wishes. It's just a great shame. So obviously he's very disappointed um, that it didn't work out. Obviously he had an idea of what he wanted to do for Bond. They had another idea. It's amazing that it got so far down the line, and they realised it wasn't working out for them. Mm. Um, Mark so Tills. It's, it's, it's frustrating. As I think it would have been quite good, but the. Um it seems to happen quite frequently on Bond films where they can make these kind of decisions further down the line just if, if they think it's not quite right. And it's probably it's probably something you don't see as much of in, in, in a lot of other films where it just kind of, you know, they lead them to it. It's, it must be quite difficult for someone like Danny Boyle. But, um, but yeah, I would have been quite excited to see that. Yeah, it happens quite a lot, obviously, in the superhero world, doesn't it? You feel like they've got such a clear vision of what they want from these films. And it's yeah. obviously the same with with Bond as well. Um, Barbara Broccoli and, and 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 Wilson, Michael G. Wilson, have a clear idea, and and so when it starts to deviate, they know the formula, they know what works. It yeah. becomes very risky for them. Well, it's, uh, tes- it's it's testament to the films, isn't it? Really, that if people are keeping an eye on it all the time, and the, and you've got these other films that maybe they let it, they don't mind which direction it goes in as long as it gets made by by the date that it's meant to be done, but. Yeah, it's it's true. Yeah, the Marvel films are, are quite similar. Do we know? Do we have any idea what direction that was well, that Danny I've Boyle got, was taking? Yeah, in? I've got some. Um, there is a little bit of information out there. Like I said, Mark Tildesley was brought on as the production designer. Danny Boyle's regular production designer, um, and he's done a few interviews since um, then because obviously he went on to work on what is now No Time to Die. He, uh, in an interview with Total Films, said that what Boyle was planning for Bond was extraordinary. But he also said that Boyle's ideas weren't completely cohesive at the time. And I think maybe they just weren't coming together at the speed that they that the producers needed. Um, Tilsley said, unfortunately, Danny's crazy madcap ideas didn't quite tie up with what Barbara and Michael had planned. It was definitely a good thing to do. Maybe another time, though. I'm revving Barbara up to have another go with Danny. He had some extraordinary ideas. They just needed a little pulling together. And mm. later on, he, um, Mark Tilsley, this is a really great interview, actually. It's on it's on YouTube. It's with the Media and Film Masterclass with the Media and Film Studies, LPSB. He did an interview where he revealed that he was already in the process of building a 350-foot rocket, rocket on the 007 stage at Pinewood and uh, in, the, in the process of building a Russian gulag in the mountains in Canada. Um, when it all started to fall fall apart. So he was already building these mm-hmm. sets and it just all came to a standstill. 
Although Tildesley says that he'd want Boyle to have another go at doing Bond, I think Boyle has ruled himself out. Um, he's said that um, I think he's been put off the idea of making big juggernaut franchise films like this. He said to, uh, in an interview with the Metro, he said, I learned my lesson that I'm not cut out for franchises. Otherwise, you're just digging in the same hole. I'm I'm better not quite... I am better not quite in the mainstream franchise movie, is the honest answer. I learned quite a lot about myself with Bond. I work in partnerships with writers and I'm not prepared to break it up. So I think mm-hmm. it just it's just a case of that he wasn't prepared to toe the line for what he wanted. There is a rumour that... They, he wanted to kill off Bond in his in his version. Yeah. Um, but when you actually, when I think about Danny Boyle, I think he would have been a very left field choice for Bond because although he has made, you know, Twenty Eight Days Later, you could say is a thriller. You yeah. could say um, what was that heist film? Trance, sort of. But he's never really made that sort of action spectacular that you want from Bond. Yeah, he's um, probably around that time where and you've seen it quite a lot with um, Wilson and um, Broccoli where they're probably looking at these directors and they do it with actors and stuff as well where they go this this we want this left field thing we want this more arty version of, of what we do we want to see how it would work but when it actually comes down to the line you can't get that far away from the Bond formula can you you can't you can't change the the format of it because it just won't work and it sounds like it probably sometimes it takes him a bit of time to realize that but um you know straight away from hiring danny boyle that's a risk and that's a that's that it, it could could not work um but it, it sounds like they yeah <laughs> let it go too far down the line before realizing that but it's been interesting. very interesting for it to go through because i i think while they might not be a, a match made in heaven yeah, I think I'd certainly be interested in seeing what the outcome was. Oh, it could be amazing, couldn't it? It could be. Yeah. It could change the future of Bond with if you take one of these left field, more left field directors and and get them to do it. But I mean, it's yeah. a. It's, I suppose it gets harder and harder the more Bond films you make because you can't risk it. Really, it's mm-hmm. you want people want what know what they want, but they want the same but different. It's it's yeah. just an impossible situation, isn't it? I guess that. Yeah. Um, it's quite interesting that they then went with Kerry Fukunaga, who um, had a, a track record of, you know, falling out on projects with producers himself. Like he worked on the It film for a long time and then, you know, walked off that project because he fell out with the producers on that. Um, so mm. I think even at the time he felt like a bit of a risky proposition, but fair play to him. He's, well, he's delivered a film <laughs> to yeah, Elon <laughs> and now we're just waiting to see it. Um but yeah, whether Danny Boyle will feature again in the future of Bond, we shall have to wait and find so it's, out. Uh, it's it's quite a if, if if that happened to you, maybe if you were you were like a Michael Billington character and you were nearly there all the time but never quite made it, it's a bit different than putting loads of effort in and then coming off of it and then you probably wouldn't want to risk that again, would you? Especially if you, I imagine it probably wasn't the the best relationship at the time when when that happened. So. Yeah, it doesn't sound doesn't sound too likely, but be definitely an interesting one to, to see never, if that did Never happen. say never again. Yeah, maybe he'll, yeah. Di- he'll direct a <laughs> Never Say Never Again remake. <laughs> so up next we have Brandt, Helga Brandt, also known as Number 11. She's the personal assistant to Japanese industrialist Mr. Ozato and also a member of Spectre. She's portrayed by the German actress Karin Dorr, and she appears in the 1967 film You Only Live Twice. So there's not much known about the character Helga Brandt. Um, she's quite mysterious. Uh, she's got red hair. She's known as number 11 with Spectre. And she, at some point within the gap between Thunderball and You Only Live Twice, has inherited the title number 11 um, from her predecessor, who was played by Murray Cash in Thunderball. So it's a promotion, I would imagine, that's got her that. So she's number 11. And so she works as a secretary. That's where we see her first. But she's sort of asked to do a lot of those tasks undercover tasks 
such as a waitress, pilot, torturer, and assassin. So, sort of, sort of used as as she's needed, really. Jack of all um, trades for uh, yeah, assassins. Yeah, dial an assassin. Mm. Yeah, um, so spends the, the whole of that time sort of know, knowing that she's dispensable, treading on eggshells. So making sure she does the job well. Um, otherwise, she'll face the wrath of uh, Stavro Blofeld. Um, so she is seen on the operations room off Spectre's volcanic launch site uh, in the film, and she helps with the capture of a Soviet spacecraft. Blofeld then summons uh, Asato and Number 11 for a report and tells them off because they've failed to recognise and kill Bond. So Asato tries to shift the blame over to to Brandt, who then sort of fi- fires back, oh, we, you should have killed him. You had the chance. So Blofeld reminds them that Spectre don't tolerate failure and bids them farewell and gives Asato one last chance. Unfortunately, not the same can be said for Helga Brandt. Because she, she features in quite a, quite a grisly death. She's walks across a suspension bridge, um, a bridge suspended above a pool of piranhas, and Blofeld classic drops her into the piranha pool, where she is shredded to pieces. Yeah, and that's that's her, her journey within, her, the character's journey anyway within, you only live twice. Probably, probably one of the most memorable deaths in the whole of the series. That, that yeah. piranha tank. Uh, so, the character itself, she was created specifically for the adaptation of the novel by Roald Dahl. So Roald Dahl created this character. So there's no no real similar character that existed before that. There's many many European uh, models at the time were tested to play the character. Um, but finally came down to Karen Dorr being cast. So in terms of uh, Karen Dorr, she performed that stunt herself, the final death stunt. She did the drop um, without the use of a double. A double. Uh, she didn't obviously get ripped to shreds. So. <laughs> stunt piranhas. <laughs> uh, weird, weird fact that she was actually dubbed by another actress for the German version of You Only Live Twice. So Karen Dorr is a natural brunette, and the producers actually wanted a blonde German girl to play the character. But they ended up with Karen Dorr. So with as a compromise, that's why they dyed the character's hair red. Uh, during the actual filming, Karen Dorr was nearly hit by a falling spotlight mm. in, a, in a, a brush with death. So Karen Dorr, uh, born, it's pronunciation again, here we go, born Katarosa Dare. Okay, not do. Yeah, that'll do. Okay. <laughs> 22nd of February 1938, was a German actress, and she was born in Weisbaden in Germany. So she also starred in Alfred Hitchcock's movie Topaz. So oh, really? Yeah. Yes. Um, and surprisingly, I found this hard to believe. She's the only German Bond girl. Mm, Is that right? Wow. That does I, seem I, hard I, to believe. I, I went through the whole list. I was like, no, that's got enough. Yeah, she's the only German one. It's got to be one in an Imagine Secret Service. There's not. I've, I've scoured the list. You can scour <laughs> it too if you want. No, I'm not going to scour it. <laughs> that was your job. <laughs> so she then had a, a long, illustrious theatre career within Germany. And sadly, in July 2016, she was on holiday and she was knocked to the ground after being rammed by a woman with a, with a pushchair. She then fell onto the concrete and she got a four centimetre head wound, oh. and, which had to be stitched in hospital. So she lost, she lost her memory for that duration. So that hour is lost, so she doesn't remember what happened. And the doctors didn't detect anything amiss at the time. Um, only a few weeks later during rehearsals for a play 
did they realise that the injuries were more serious than first first thought? Um, even months after the accident, the effects were still present. She wasn't feeling up to herself. She she was had problem uh, problem walking, but she remained positive, and she kept on working. So she was still performed on stage um, every evening as well. So she still carried on. But then in January 2017, so that's a year and a half, no, that's six months. So six months after she relapsed and her condition rapidly worsened two months after that, uh, she was confined to a care home where she died aged 79 on 6th of November 2017. Oh, shame. Um, So quite a sad end to her life there. Um, But she celebrated her time with 007. She said, it's unbelievable. I get a lot of people asking for autographs. A lot from America and Japan, even from Russia. It was very enjoyable. I love the picture and the people I worked with. So, That's great. Yeah. Great character. She's, uh, yeah, she's a yeah. really interesting one. Uh, that, as you say, there wasn't really anyone like her before. They did have femme fatales like Volpe and Thunderball, mm-hmm. but nobody that's quite like... She always seemed a bit... Um, uh, out of all of the, the, the kind of femme fatales that, that worked under Blofeld in, in, in the earlier films, she always seemed a little bit more nervous or scared all the time of, of Blofeld, which you don't don't often see in with with the Blofeld baddies. I don't know if that was intentional, but it definitely came across that way. Yeah, I, I think it definitely does come across. I really like the first scene where she meets Bond because they got the interaction about the um, is it Bollinger? But yeah, so Helga Brandt, good character. B is for Brickus, Leslie Brickus. So you'll know Leslie Brickus for Goldfinger and You Only Live Twice. And he did those two Bond, Bond, Bond films. Um, I didn't actually know a great deal about Leslie Brickus until I researched him. And he is a phenomenal man who his history in the industry is just ridiculous. Like He's one of those old school kind of celebrity creators that just knew everybody and was involved in everything and some of the stories that he's involved with are just absolutely ridiculous i i started like watching documentaries about him and and he's got a book i'll talk about in a bit but there is so much he's like the roger moore of composing <laughs> he's just got a story about everything and he if you go on youtube and look for documentaries um interviews and stuff with him he's just reeling off these famous people's stories just like roger moore does um, absolutely phenomenal. He's like d- done so much. So I'll I'll just go through the highlights. Um, he uh, he was born in uh, January 1931. Uh, he's an English composer. He's a lyricist and a playwright, and he does all of those things quite a lot. He doesn't just do. He's not, normally you'd get somebody who just does one or two of those things, but he does all of them. Um, he's really he's done so many like music, songs and musicals over the years. Some of the main ones he's worked on are Dr. Doolittle, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Scrooge, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, uh, Hook he, he did as well. Um, and uh, he's got loads of like, songs that he's worked on. He did the um, uh, song for Superman in 1978 called Can You Read My Mind, uh, the love theme. Um, it, it, some of his most famous songs, Candyman and Pure Imagination, obviously from Willy Wonka and Chocolate Factory. Pure Imagination is actually the name of his uh, biography, uh, autobiography. And then um, he's, it, so interestingly, he did a song for Home Alone, uh, Christmas at Hogwarts for Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Um, and yeah, he's just done loads. He's won an uh, Academy Award, two Academy Awards for Talk to the Animals for Best Original Song from Block Doolittle Little in 1968, um, Best Adaption of an Original Song Score for Victor Victoria. I've never seen that. Um, he has a Grammy Award. He's got loads of nominations for various different things. Ridiculous man. He's done, he's done so much and he's really nice as well. If you ever watch an interview with him, he's just just a nice old guy who's just just telling these really nice little stories um his personal life he was born in uh pinner in middlesex interesting fact elton john was also born there and also went to school there and uh, at the same time as uh leslie went there so must be something about that school <laughs> that generates song- songwriters um 
later on, uh, he he moved to to Hollywood um, and started working on all these big musicals and things like that. He was educated at University College uh, uh, School in London and then at Gonville and Chaos College, Cambridge. Uh, and while he was at Cambridge, he was Secretary of Footlights between oh, 1952 and 1953 and the Footlights president during the following year. So, yeah, that's straight away. He's pretty important to, to this kind of performing arts. And he, this is where he started to know everyone. And if you ever look at a, a list of people that have been to Footlights, it's absolutely ridiculous. Like the, the people that... That, that went there and started performing there. Mm-hmm. In um, the 1960s and 70s, Brickus enjoyed, uh, or he worked with Anthony Newley, who, like like Brickus, is an incredibly talented man. Um, he's He worked on loads of musicals with him. Um, and Anthony Newley's actually, he's more of a, a, a singer and, and a songwriter um, and they had this kind of partnership where they they worked together on all these different projects, and it was one of the the big the big partnerships that you'd you'd get from back in the the golden years of um, of Hollywood and, and musicals. They wrote the music musical "Stop the World, I Want to Go Off" in 1961, uh, "Roar of the Grease Paint," "Smell of the Crowd," and "Willy Wonka and Chocolate Factory." He's done other stuff as well. He's um, watched Sammy, Sammy Davis Jr. Um, on "What Kind of Fool Am I." From Stop the World, I want to get off, and the and and uh, Candyman. Uh, Sammy Davis Jr. had big hits for those songs um, that that were written and created by um, Leslie. He uh, has worked with Nina Simone on Feeling Good, which did very well. Matt Monroe and Frank Sinatra, My Kind of Girl. Shirley Bassey, obviously, which we'll come to in a second. Um, Harry Seacombe, If I Ruled the World, uh, and Nancy Sinatra, of course, on You Only Live Twice. He also did worked with George Tipton. Uh, who to write the opening theme of the US television series It's a Living I haven't seen that sitcom apparently it's quite popular so that's a bit of history about uh, Leslie and kind of where he comes from and it, it I mean there's there's a lot more than that that you could go on for ages about the stories that, that, that he's involved with um, but eventually he worked on Goldfinger and got involved in, in, in the Bond films and I've, I've actually mentioned this I, I think when, when, when we talk on another podcast but um he, John Barry played him the original notes of Goldfinger to to Leslie and Anthony Newley, and um, at the time they just both started singing uh, the melody to Moon River, wider than a mile, because it's just start very similar. <laughs> um, apparently Barry was was not amused, but he says uh, one source of inspiration uh, inspiration for the song was Mac the Knife, uh, which director Guy Hamilton showed showed um, John Barry. Uh, thinking it was gritty and rough, a gritty and rough song that could be a model for what the film requires. Um, and Brickers and Newley would not show any film footage or, or, or script excerpts for the Goldfinger song. They were actually only told about the Jill Masterson scene with with the gold. So they based the whole of this Goldfinger song just off that, which you can kind of get quite from this. It's really all the song is about, isn't it? They just know there's a baddie who's done this thing to... Uh, we, we, we was obsessed with gold and, and there's this woman involved so really simple premise that they've, they've pulled together yeah um, once him and Newley uh, hit upon utilising the Midas touch line that was like the key to that song um, that's, apparently the whole song just came together they realised what it was all about as soon as they just picked out picked out that line um, and then of course they went on to do You Only Twice um, he went off to, to work with uh, Don Black uh, and Interestingly, there was he was pulled in to You and Live Twice, and they did a early version of of the song, which um, was never actually used, and it was never actually credited either until they created the new version, which of course had Nancy Sinatra that did it. Um, so there's many stories about how they pulled You and Live Twice together and who they wanted to do it. They actually wanted Frank Sinatra to do it because he was friends with Cubby Broccoli at the time, but then um, they ended up getting um, Frank Sinatra's daughter to do it which works very well. Um, other things he's known for are, he wrote the lyrics to My Old Man's a Dustman, <laughs> uh, which was sang by uh, uh, Lonnie Donegan. Do- Lonnie Donegan. Uh, I, I, yeah, I didn't know a lot about him, but he's not credited for it, but he did it under the pseudonym of Beverly Thorne. I don't uh. know why he chose that. Really interesting story for you, Butler. Um, he he just written a song for Home Alone with John Williams, and... Um, John Williams called him to just say how pleased he was with with, with the final lyrics, um, and then he, he during the call he said, "Oh, so hold on, I've got to go and speak to someone." 
and he came back and he said, "Oh, that was um, that was the the young prince." And apparently, that's what uh, John Williams called Steven Spielberg. And he was telling him how much how much he liked your lyrics. He would like wants to know if you want to work on Hook. That's how he got involved in the film Hook. And he says that's how all of his that's how his business has started. It's just like all these happenstance things happened where he just was speaking to somebody, he did something else. Um, but it was mainly at the time when he was he he, he was working on um, Doctor Doolittle. He said that he he just kind of met people and he just got him involved in lots of different things. Everyone just knew he was just this musical writer, so he just get all these jobs off the back of it, and that's how he met John Williams and all these all these sorts of people. Um, and there was a producer called Arthur Jacobs who worked on Doctor Doolittle. Doctor Doolittle. He was a famous publicist. Um, and also Marilyn Monroe's press agent. And he uh, came along to him and he, he actually found out that Leslie had written a score for Noah's Ark, which was just some musical that I'd never heard of. But because it was about animals, he said, um, oh, we'll get you involved in this new thing we're doing called Dr. Doolittle because he'd written all these songs about animals. So he just got into all these 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 things because, because of these weird little chance encounters, which I think is something... It's a quite an old style thing and probably happened quite a lot in the golden years of Hollywood where there probably weren't a lot of people that... It's not like nowadays where if you want to find a producer or a director or a musician, it's quite easy. But back in those days, you couldn't just... You didn't just know loads of them. You'd probably just go, well, I know somebody's working on this film. Let's speak it's got to animals their... in it. <laughs> it's got animals in it. We'll get them involved. Um, so, yeah, that was a quite an interesting um, kind of in to how he was uh, getting getting all all of this work. And um, yeah, so he's done he's done all sorts of stuff, a ridiculous amount of things. He he wrote a book um, called Pure Imagination, a sorter biography. It's apparently is a massive book and just talks about all his life in the in the stage and all all this kind of stuff. And it got uh, it, there was a version of, or it wasn't a version of the book, but there was a a stage show that was made about his life, and it was fifty of his songs that he he he'd written and and. Um, performed by these 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 stage singers and dancers um which was in 2015 which i watched some clips of it and looked looked really good um so yeah so he's he's just an amazing man he's just had like, an enormous range of things that he's been involved with but yeah if you look at the two songs that he's done for bond i'm surprised he didn't do more actually after that because you know they were quite good i always find it quite difficult with um these kind of writers composers lyricists because even though they're you know, it says that they wrote these songs. They tend to work the write write them together, and it's really difficult to work out who does what. Yeah. And he, even he was saying that when he started working on things, uh, there was a documentary I watched where uh, somebody was saying, "So what? What was your job on that? And what was the job of Anthony Newley?" And he was like, "Well, we didn't even know. We just sat down, and one of us would go, well, I've got this idea, and the other one would do the other bits.' So, yeah, it's a bit. I always find it quite difficult to work out how much these people have worked on things and what bit is theirs, but. Um, He's definitely um, he's massively respected in in the industry and has done so much stuff over the years that uh, yeah as I say I'm surprised he didn't end up doing more after after um, those two yeah if he, films. he's got a track record like that you would imagine that he is part of the magic right yeah yeah, yeah and, in, and 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 he talks a lot which I find really interesting um, that about context and he was saying that. Is a big difference between being a musical writer or a, 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 a lyricist for a film because you, you have context. Whereas if you're a songwriter who's just writing songs for an album, there's no context. You're writing words about something that doesn't mean anything outside of that song. But if people come to him and they say, right, Leslie, there's a scene with a monkey that's trying to steal a... I don't know, banana <laughs> off of the Dr. Doolittle. And he just goes, I know exactly what. So all I need to do in this scene is convey that there's a monkey trying to do that. So that context makes it really, really simple. So that's that's like with Goldfinger and You're Only Twice. He had the context. yeah, And, he, and the context is the film, isn't it? And you've just got to make the song fit that context and, you've, and, it, and it works. And, that, and if you think about that with some of the other Bond songs, there isn't really a context of it. Like... Um, I don't know what what View to a Kill soundtrack. It doesn't. That, I don't think that song's got a, a lot of context to the context to the to the actual film. It's just uses a line from it really. Mm-hmm. But that's where this kind of old magic style of writing comes in. And I mean, with Goldfinger, you, you know, Goldfinger especially. I mean, that song is so synonymous with that film, isn't it? That it just fits perfectly. Um, 
and you only live twice as well that, that, that it's just a brilliant song and as a, as i mentioned before they did another version of you only live twice before they came to the, the final version and they got rid of it it's a very good song yeah, but good. they they just thought it just, and they they he put all the work into it they'd worked together to create it and they just said after a bit we're not using it it's just not right we're going to go back and we're going to going to try something else which is great isn't it really mm. some um, of the audio cues carry imagine. over i think from listening to it that sort of oriental yes, that, sound, oh, sound that that it sort of has. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, they, they they yeah they would have reused what they had, but they just yeah it just wasn't right. And I I I can't imagine. I'm not sure, but I if I feel with the new many of the new ones, especially a lot of the Daniel Craig era guitar ones, I don't imagine that's as big an issue. It's 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 more like having a great song or a good song that they want. It doesn't have to be synonymous with the film. Yeah, but that's just my view. Leslie Brickus, then. So there we have it. Leslie Brickus, great man. B is for Brioni. Now, Brioni is a, an Italian menswear house. Um, it's actually now owned by a French company called Caring, but it was founded in Rome in 1945. Um, and its connection to the Bond franchise is that... It, Brioni supplied the suits for all of Pierce Brosnan's films and also for Daniel Craig's uh, first film, Casino Royale. Uh, it's a bespoke uh, clothes brand um, and it's known for its suits, uh, its ready-to-wear collections and actually it's quite famous in the world of fashion for inventing a lot of different concepts including the men's runway show. They were the first company to do a runway show for men's fashion which I thought was quite interesting um, now a Brioni suit if you wanted to buy one will cost you about £3,000 um, no, right. so yeah they're not messing around but yeah so the, the the Brioni suits were introduced to Bond by the costume designer on uh, GoldenEye Lindy Hemming um, she uh, in, a bu- in the book James Bond The Suited Hero she explained that she wanted to find a suit that was uh, like similar to Savile Row, so someone that was capable of tailoring in a Savile Row manner, but also she needed to find a brand that could produce a lot of suits very quickly because of the shooting schedule for GoldenEye. Um, it had to be, you know, for Bond, it had to be a luxury brand um, and it had to be something that was synonymous with being, you know, reassuringly expensive. So Brioni was the was the design uh, designer that she she landed on. Talking about the attitude and ethics of, of the house of Brioni, Lindy Hemming said they were absolutely open to any sort of idea. They have a lifetime of making clothes for presidents and politicians, and they don't have that thing where they can't change what is going on. So if it needs 13 inside pockets or a jacket with no vents or another one that he needs to open completely down the back, they can do it. And so that was, you know, this this brand dressed Brosnan um, and it's quite a distinctive style for Bond for that entire period. Um, I think you remember it's quite a loose fitting, but, you know, with big shoulders, uh, but quite a macho looking brand as well. So... That continued through Brosnan's era into Casino Royale, and um, actually Daniel Craig, when he, uh, they announced when the the, the press conference, uh, Daniel Craig wore a Brioni suit um, at the press conference, um, and uh, the tuxedo that he wears in Casino Royale is Brioni as well. Um, there are um, there's a story about I don't know if you know this about the audition. You know when when they do st- screen tests to play Bond so they basically do the same scene every time it's a scene from um, from Russia with Love and there are photos of Daniel Craig doing his screen test he looks he's got longer hair than he's used to but he's he's like you know buff and they say that the suit that he's wearing in that scene is Brioni and he strips down to his down to his trousers so he's wearing Brioni there as well because obviously that was just the brand that was around with Bond at the time uh, and there's that famous photo of him with the with the gun with the silencer that they used to announce him as Bond. Apparently, that's a Brioni suit, although that's not ever been confirmed. Just before Casino Royale came out, uh, Brioni, the brand, launched a three thousand pound Bond themed tuxedo, which has 007 stitched into the lining of the of the jacket, and it's only sold, you know, in a few a handful of places. 
Um, so talking about um, the company's relationship with Bond, uh, Ant- Antonella De Simone, she's the Italian co-chief executive, she said that our Taylor, Taylor's would go to London for all the fittings. Bond has always been an icon of style and sartorial elegance, and we dressed other characters too, including Miss Moneypenny. So they dressed Miss Moneypenny. Mm. In Casino Royale, everyone at the casino table was dressed by Brioni, and these were very strange guys. A big black man, a fat man, the models, all the people at the table were wearing Brioni. Um, also, thinking back to the... Um, Brosnan areas. You know, Die Another Day when he's in Cuba and he's got that blue shirt on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right? it's yeah. very distinctive. Mm-hmm. That's Brioni as well. Ah. Um, so, interestingly, uh, as is as we've discussed with the situation with Aston Martin, there's no money is exchanged for the relationship mm. for Brioni and James Bond, um, according to Lindy Hemming and, and the Brioni um, people as well. So, Brioni don't pay for the privilege of dressing Bond. Um, uh, and obviously that comes at a cost to them, but then they get the the, 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 the luxury of being the Bond brand, right, of the time. Um, and, and actually when, when Piers Brosnan used to put his Brioni suit on while he was on set, he used to say, I'm putting on Bond. That's how, like, he saw the Brioni mm. brand. Um so talking about not paying for the privilege of, of being in the Bond film, uh, De Simone said, this is not our policy. We are we were chosen for our art, never for money. We want to be discreet and elegant outside the glamour and the noise. So that was it. So mm. Brioni's relationship with Bond ended after Casino Royale. It's not really clear why. Um, I think Lindy Hemming didn't come back to do Quantum of Solace and they brought in a new uh, costume designer and at that time because obviously there's a costume designer on the film and then there's the brand that supplies the suit as well and it was at that point that then Tom Ford came in to dress Bond and has done ever since uh, it's not really clear why they changed brand um, but yeah I guess it was probably a decision of the of, of the costume designer that you know Bond had, yeah. Bond had come back and he needed a new style to, to move forward with and it's funny, isn't it? It's that whole. Uh, it it seems to me like with Aston Martin and Brioni, uh, maybe even like Omega Seamaster and things like that, that they get more out of it than than the Bond like franchise does. You, like the BMW deal, there was a you, there was a clear thing. There was a clear marketing angle where they had, they were doing adverts for the mainstream, weren't they? They were getting free advertising, but I've never seen an advert for Brioni. I I've yeah. never, but maybe that's maybe the just having it with Bond actually means that the people who buy Brioni suits are more likely to buy it. And it's the advert itself, isn't it? The film is the advert. And actually, when you read into it, Brioni never, very rarely, you know, in their shops, they wouldn't have like standees of Pierce Brosnan in the suit. Hmm. So they like, wouldn't capitalise on that. They didn't really capitalise on it. No, they no. just took the association and, uh, you know, enjoyed the, enjoyed the relationship. Yeah. Um, so well, that's probably what people people who can afford those kind of suits that's probably what they like the, the kind of yeah it's understated modest, isn't it subtle, yeah understated yeah mm-hmm. you don't want to see your suit on an advert all the time no you think um, of like you know yeah. the aristocracy you don't see them wearing their like designer brands with like logos and stuff do they they just want yeah. something you know they want the barber jacket that does its job as it's supposed as it's supposed to it's um quite yeah. interesting yeah but that's that's brioni so um not much more to add to that Where are we going next? Well, it's interesting you mentioned the screen test because B is for Brolin, James Brolin, born Craig Kenneth Brudelin. So it's still a B, so we're okay with his real name as well. <laughs> um, he's born July 18th, 1940. He's a, an American actor, producer, director. He's the father of Josh Brolin and he's the husband of Barbara Streisand, who is his third wife. He's also got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which he got in 1998. So, his story, how he's linked to Bond. So, in 1982, he was cast to play James Bond in Octopussy, the 13th Bond film. Actually cast. So, he was actually cast to be James Bond in Octopussy. But he fell victim to that 
period of time where Roger Moore was doing the will he, won't he. You know, they were trying to coax him back, as we covered in previous episodes of the podcast. He fell victim to this in, in quite a, a big way because he was, he'd got the gig. He'd bought a place in London, a flat. Yeah, I read this. In. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, so he'd he and he he'd gone back to America to up and and leave and pack all this stuff, and that's when he he got the call where they said Roger Moore's agreed to do it. So, and and obviously that was because the uh, Sean Connery was coming back to make Never Say Never Again, and they thought we need to go in that direction, have familiarity rather than a new Bond. So Roger Moore had said, this is a quote from Brolin, Roger Moore had said, I'm not doing any more Bond. So Cubby Broccoli starts interviewing people and flies me over, takes me to all the great spots, then finally decides. We talked about having an intercontinental accent. I'm not British and a lot of people are going to object. Anyway, I got my flat, I started working out with the stuntmen and then I went back to collect all my stuff because I'm going to be gone a year. I'm home about a week and I get a message that Roger Moore has decided to do Octopussy. So it really was all done. You know, he was, he'd already started on, on working on it and the accent, so the screen tests, they're on, they're on the internet, they're on YouTube and you can watch them. So the accent, it is, it's not as strong American as his own, his own accent, but it's certainly not British either. It's got that transatlantic feel to it. So yeah, this was the closest that we've ever come to having an American playing the the role of James Bond, and there's a a lot. I'm sure we'll discuss this in the future in the podcast. There's a lot of actors who have turned it down because uh, they don't see it right being an American playing Bond. Which the more I think about it, the 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 more I think that's quite silly. Really, I mean, it doesn't matter, does it? it, it well, I, I think it's the same principle as the Aston Martin and stuff like that. It's like you've you, you've you've made a rule, you've drawn a line in the sand, and you're saying this we're sticking to this rule, and and it kind of defines it from there on. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that point with um, Brolin, they probably didn't have that rule. They had Sean Connery, they had Roger Moore. They, at that point, they probably were open to all these different ideas of where yeah. people came from. It was only later on they probably got to after Dalton and said oh we've got a rule here haven't we we've now got like four people now that that are going to be um uh are going to be English um well apart from one well Scottish um, Australian yeah. well Welsh. yeah British British <laughs> sorry you've got you've got one you've got one Australian that, that that fits in there yeah you've only got He's two English British. yeah British <laughs> but no but so the, I mean the fact that there's only two English two like English yeah, actors that have played it means that rule that they've sort of created for themselves. Yeah, is yeah. doesn't even. It's true, but yeah, that's for us. But for if you're an American, of course. they don't see a massive distinction between British Britons and English yeah. people and all that kind of stuff. So it's abroad. There's probably a kind of marketing level of it where you want it to be British, otherwise it changes the. The, the thing about Bond is though, and, and like I think if they're going to get an American to play him. That's fine. I've got no no issue with that. But they have to they have to be they have to have the British accent. I think they have to be yeah, clearly I, I agree. has to be clearly but, defined yeah. as British because the thing about Bond is he is uh, he's a very British character. He, he, he's a rogue. He's he and he does all these dastardly deeds. And the and the kicker is that he's doing it in the name of Queen and Country. That's the that's yeah. the whole yeah. that's the whole point. He's not a spy for hire, is he? He's he's doing it for a reason. He's doing it for the good of his own country, and he's it's a very British thing. Mm. Um, and so, like, you can give it to anyone you want. You know, they, they auditioned Christoph, Christophe Lambert. You know, he was French. <laughs> but you've got yeah. to make him you've got to make him British and uh, you know I'm sure yeah. James Brolin would have been great and actually he really looks the part when you when you look at him he really does yeah mm. he he reminds me of Christian Bale in, in the screen test if you yeah if you he does, he does look like him yeah, yeah. 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 so in 1985 he, Brolin actually parried, parodied his uh, the whole Bond saga in Pee Wee's Big Adventure <laughs> so yeah. he he stars in it's a little tiny bit. It's a film within a film, and he merges the characters of Pee Wee and Bond uh, to become 
Herman. P.W. Herman. And he checks in at a hotel. And it's just a short, silly scene. Again, it's available on, on uh, online to watch. Um, but that's quite a nice nod to his, to his story uh, regarding yeah. Bond. Um, so after this, he goes on to uh, continue his acting career. Um, a huge hit uh, as Peter McDermott who is a general manager of a, a hotel in a TV series called Hotel. I don't know if anyone, any of you have seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so more recently, uh, you're looking at films like Traffic, Steven Soderbergh's Traffic, mm-hmm. uh, Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can, Last, Ch- Last Chance Harvey with Emma Thompson and Dustin Hoffman uh, in 2008. He played the Republican opponent of Jed Bartlett in The West Wing. He also portrayed Ronald Reagan in a TV film called The Reagans. He's been in Monk. He's also been in Law and Order. I don't know which version, but he plays an astronaut. So maybe there's a space yep. version. He's in uh, Psych Castle. So he's doing his his bits and pieces in, in TV in America. But he, from 2015 to 2019, he played the role of John in CBS comedy Life in Pieces. Have you seen that one? No. It's, it's a pretty long stint, so that finished in 2019. So, yeah, he's he's had a... Busy a, man. ...a solid career, but didn't get that... Well, he did get it, but didn't actually get to... Oh, there's so many. We'll have it. to do it. Co- collect all of the people that have almost, but never actually... Yeah. Yeah, made it to the made it to the shooting day. It's, I mean, uh, it's quite sad, really, isn't it? That's eye watering, wateringly close. That is, isn't it? I mean, yeah, that 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 beats Billington, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but he is the father of Thanos, so yeah, Josh Brolin, yeah. obviously, uh, in No Country for Old Men, starred opposite yeah. uh, Silver yeah. Yeah. Skyfall. What's his or- name? What's the actor's name? Javier Bardem. So Javier Bardem. A, yep. a little yep. link back to Bond there. Also, the second time we've mentioned Thanos in the podcast <laughs> seems to be coming. A, seems to be coming a theme. <laughs> ah. So yeah, that's James Brolin. Great, interesting. Well, thank you yeah. for listening to this uh, episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast. Next episode will be another special. Uh, we've reached the point where we will be talking about the broccolis. Obviously, as we always say, we try to get all the information as correct as possible. But if we've missed anything or if you have anything you want to add or tell us about any of the people we've talked about this week, then please email us on bond a to z podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, but thank you for listening. Please leave yes, us a good you. review and don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And till next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.